Hi there, hello, and welcome back to 43% and Rising, the podcast about women in marketing. I'm your host, Beatrice Alabaster, and I've been getting together with some game-changing women in our industry to hear all about their experiences of what it takes to rise to the top. 43% and Rising is brought to you by Ernest, the award-winning agency chasing the humdrum out of B2B marketing. This week, I'm talking to Rebecca Mortar, founder and CEO of Lone Design Club. You're going to hear all about Rebecca's journey founding a retail business right before the pandemic, balancing business acumen with creativity, convincing people why they should believe in your business and avoiding the pitfalls of perfectionism. For Rebecca, being an entrepreneur is all about that willingness to pivot, being able to roll with the punches and be flexible about exactly how you reach your goals. Hi, Rebecca. How are you doing? Hi, I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for having me on the show. It's exciting to be here. Thank you for coming on mid heat wave. That's very good. I'm sure you'd rather be kind of <laughs> lying somewhere nice. <laughs> yeah, I mean, wouldn't we all right? But it's, um, I actually love, um, it's like some, it's some of my favorite time um, being in London is when it is really hot. Sometimes I don't understand why people go away. Obviously, it's great to be on a beach, right? But when it's so hot here, and it's such a rare occasion for us. I think it can be just so nice to be in the city and just going to the park. And There's definitely a party atmosphere, isn't there? <laughs> yeah, and it's just so nice. You know, the, the sun, um, you just get such longer days. It's just so, to, you know, the weather's beautiful. Everyone's in such a positive mood. Yes, you're dripping and, you know, sweaty and, uh, <laughs> you know, taking the underground in isn't the most fun thing um, when it's like this, but it's so much nicer than being in the cold in winter. So, no, I, I, the summer is... Um, some of my favorite it's probably yeah one of my favorite times to be in London um, yeah. yeah oh so nice well it's nice to nice to be recording in very un-London like conditions <laughs> yeah where are you based um so I'm based in London usually I'm actually in okay. France at the moment bizarrely mm. um we have remote working so amazing it's uh I just kind of thought like take the opportunity why not go and yeah. uh, live somewhere different so that's great how long are you out there for three months I think now with the EU you're legally allowed to be out for 90 days without getting a visa so I'm here for 89 (laughs) oh wow amazing oh that's so nice so no very lucky very lucky that work allowed me to do that flexible working is definitely definitely for me (laughs) yeah no that's great yeah the joys of I guess it's some of the positives of coming out of COVID right that um We've entered this new world of hybrid working, flexible working, and um, you actually, you know, you can just be so much more productive by building your own schedule. Yeah. Um, which is so nice. We've got quite a few of the team doing similar things, um, being able to go, um, because obviously two years of not being able to go home, you know, if you're, you know, if you're not, um, you're not from London or the UK, um, and just being able to kind of go and work and, and live for a while, but still be able to do your job just the exact uh, same capacity, if not even better, um, I think is amazing. Productivity levels definitely increased. And everyone's so much happier being able to build yeah. schedules. <laughs> it's so interesting, isn't it? Because it does, when you when you feel like you have control of your own working situation, I think you do feel almost more enthusiastic to work. It has a kind of inverse effect. You know, you're more you're yeah. more engaged if you're doing it in a way that suits you. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's interesting that one of the things that, um, yeah, that definitely came from the pandemic that it's, it's proved is that, you know, this whole idea of nine to five and this idea of you have to be in the office to get work done. 
um, and this quite or this very rigid, you know, structure or approach to to kind of the working day or our roles. Um, that actually you can by building your schedule yourself by setting your own, um, you know, structure. At the end of the day, you know, the goal is just to achieve KPIs and deliver, right? Yeah. Um, and to perform well. You don't, you know, no one really cares um, if you're in the office or not. And actually, it's so much more productive to go in when you need to, be collaborative, but actually then build your schedule around what's going to be most productive for you. And I think we've certainly seen the results. Um, yeah, like I said, everyone's so much happier, but actually the results are able to deliver, the thought processes, the strategy is so much more, it works so much better for everybody as opposed to, you know, having to do this nine to five and, you know, kind of at the end of the day when you go home or nine to six, whatever it is, um, you just don't achieve anything because you've yeah. just spent the whole day kind of faffing. <laughs> it's really interesting. It's, it's really interesting. I mean, I love it. And it's, you know, I think a lot of people do at the moment. Um, it's definitely, it's definitely helped. Definitely. I'm, I'm, I am most definitely with you of your mind. <laughs> so um, just to get things kind of rolling then, can you just tell me like a little bit about yourself and what you do? Yeah, sure. Um, so my name is Rebecca um, and I'm the founder and CEO of a business called Lone Sign Club. Um, and essentially what we are is an omni-channel retail platform and we focus on the sustainable fashion sector. Um, what that means is that we essentially are a online platform that works with um, direct-to-consumer, digitally native businesses that are from essentially kind of one year, so very early stage, all the way through to kind of eight to ten years um, in business. And these are either one-man band teams or the, uh, one-man band um, individuals, you know, building a brand or you know smaller teams. And essentially, what we do is we help them power their growth. Um, by our data-driven, lean and agile retail strategy. And that essentially is looking at how the future of, what is the future of the high street, the future of bricks and mortar retail and being able to build strategies around that for these brands that will then superpower their growth. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with, or hopefully you know, people listening um, are familiar with, you know, the kind of OGs when it comes to D2C retail, so businesses like Glossier, which I'm sure everyone knows, um, Warby Parker, Bonobos, um, Farfetch, Gymshark, all these businesses that started off heavily focused, very digitally native, very heavily focused in digital, and now all entering or building out their bricks and mortar retail strategies. And it's so fascinating um, that, you know, we've gone through a few years of COVID where, you know, so many people during the pandemic were like, oh, physical is dead. You know, no one's going to go back to the high street. Total rubbish. What we've seen coming out of the pandemic is the absolute opposite, that actually physical retail has is more important than ever before. It's just a different way um, of doing business. It's just it, people want a different thing, different, um, they want different things from the high street now. And they want to be able to play across digital and physical channels, which is where essentially we come in. So we work with about 400 brands around the world. 68% of those are UK based, um, the rest are international. And what we do is support them through e-commerce, so digital retail, um, but we superpower their growth and we give them, essentially, we can increase their sales, their customer um, customer lifetime value, um, their customer engagement, everything by a strategic data-driven retail strategy. So in a nutshell, that wasn't really a nutshell, but that's essentially us. <laughs> no, it was great. <laughs> You've got your elevator pitch absolutely nailed. I love it. Um, it's interesting. You kind of mentioned, you know, the impact of the pandemic on, you know, where we see the future of retail going. Is it digital? Is it physical? And how, you know, consumers do have so much more of an appetite these days for those in-person experiences. I mean, 
in your experience, are brands aware of that? Because I know we're talking more and more about, you know, brand experiences becoming digital first. But do you, I mean, how much educating do you have to do for the brands that you work with to say, like, actually, physical isn't something that you should neglect? It's really interesting. Um, I wouldn't say it so much in an education piece. Um, I think everyone's realizing pretty quick and they have that the big challenge and the challenge has always been the same being the same. It's not that COVID, I think, essentially necessarily did anything. I think it's it's it still goes back to the kind of long, uh, long standing issue, which is that e-commerce is great, you know, and if we look at what Shopify did, they essentially, you know, democratized access to the online world. They made it possible for anyone anywhere in the world to build a website. So, you know, it could be a random person and, you know, you know, anybody anywhere essentially can can build a website and sell products, right? Um, and I think the big thing is that whilst it's given so much possibility and op- opportunity, um, same with social media, anyone can now build a brand via social. And we're seeing that with so many brands. The challenge is that you're, you're getting lost in a lot of noise. Um, you know, it's all very good and well to build a business online, to have an online platform, to have a social media presence, but it does hit a roof, especially for smaller brands because customers still need to, and this is the age old problem, as, some, as somebody who doesn't know your brand, you still need to touch, feel, and see and try a product. It's really difficult for a customer that comes across your website or social media pages to then make that step to purchase when they don't know the brand. And this is a challenge that's that's been around, you know, way before COVID that we've been solving since the beginning. And it's one of the reasons I set up Lone Design Club is that digital and e-commerce is great. It's also it's very expensive, very expensive to grow. Um, customer acquisition costs now even are just skyrocketing. Um, retaining customers digitally is very difficult. It's a very competitive landscape. But actually, when you can build in a physical retail strategy where you're giving a customer a space to come to, to see, touch, feel, and actually connect with the brand on a human level, creating meaningful experiences, um, that's when it becomes super powerful. And we're seeing that, like I said, with um, this is, you know, this has been around the whole time, but um, we're seeing it now more and more with these big OG, you know, the originals of digital retail, as I said, Warby Parker, Glossier, Bonobos, all these bigger brands now realizing they need a much bigger bricks and mortar strategy because playing online only is not enough. Um, and I think it's, it's interesting when you look at other businesses like Boohoo and ASOS, even, you know, returns are so high, very different businesses. Um, but returns are, you know, super, super high. I think Boohoo, the past month or so, it was up to kind of 70% returns, which is mad. Wow. You know, industry standards are usually around 30%. Um, online anyway, whereas in store, you're looking at an industry standard around 9%. We have less than 1% return rate in store um, purely because people have made the effort to come and see these smaller brands because they don't want to just buy it online. They need to come and see it, especially it's a brand they've never heard of. There's no trust. It's one of the biggest challenges for small brands, which is why we focus on that kind of one to eight year old stage is that they the only way really, you know, obviously they've got they've got online and they've got digital, which they can use to grow, but they need that physical space. They need a space where customers can come see, touch and feel. Um, and I think that's what, you know, we're seeing. It's kind of, yeah, like I said, the age old problem has been around, but we are seeing brands more and more realizing they need to integrate this into their future strategies, not only to survive, but to be able to really thrive, to be able to create these experiences. And you get, you know, you can get customers in a physical space. You can upsell your sales associates are there to also learn from the customer. What is they like about the brand? What don't they like? The difference with digital is all you have is you're looking at, you know, you've got tools and things to look at, you know, what are people clicking? What are they buying? Why is this being returned so much? 
Are we having issues with sizing, live chat functions? But in store, you've got the ability to actually physically ask that customer exactly what's going on. Um, you're getting a much deeper form of feedback, which is vital, especially to a new small brand when they're building a business. Um, otherwise, you know, we see it time and time again, these, these small businesses that launch and they think, oh, it's, you know, they're going to, product's going to fly off the shelves and that's going to be it. Great. But actually without proper product market testing, without proper feedback from customers, you're creating stock that is, is a huge risk creating that stock. Um, and then you've got to sell it. And then obviously a lot of it is either season, um, you know, focus on season or it's, you know, you, you're kind of under pressure to get to, to move it on. Um, so by using physical retail, we're seeing a lot of brands being able to move away from that mentality and actually focus on much shorter runs, really responding to the customer and being able to build out um, sustainable business strategies that mean they're responding specifically to a customer. They can deliver and they can use that feedback to build the brand in, the, in a way that's going to sell. Um and is going to be, you know, sustainable. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. And of course, you're, you're, when you talk about this, you're kind of shaping these from first-hand experiences, right? Like you've been a small business owner, you've had a small brand yourself. I mean, how important, first of all, you know, tell me, tell me about your first founder experience, but second of all, how important were those experiences in kind of shaping your outlook for Lone Design Club and kind of motivating you to, to launch that business? Yeah, I mean, so I guess the difference with with LDC is that um, so the the business itself grew from a a challenge that we were solving as a brand. Um, so it wasn't it wasn't kind of you know there was no um, it, it wasn't I guess you know sat down wrote the business plan and this is right we can we can see something here let's give it a shot. It was very organic um, and it was very much a response to um, the times as well as a need and a gap in the market that we were seeing for smaller brands. Um, my background's in luxury fashion. So I've worked with people like Alexander Wang, um, Simone Rocha, Paul Costello, um, and um, launched my own brand uh, at London Fashion Week. I'd been working with people like Lady Gaga, Charlie XCX, um, some really amazing celebrities, um, doing a lot of commissions and a lot of kind of work. Basically, it was my side hustle when I was a design assistant. Um, got to a point, this was back in 2015, got to a point where I couldn't do both, was offered to showcase at London Fashion Week, which was really exciting. Um, and as a young, kind of naive 20 something year old, um, quit my job and just thought, you know what, give it a, I'm going to give this a go. I'm going to launch a brand as one does. Um, <laughs> you know, there was, there was a very naive perspective, but it's, you know, you just, you, you either take opportunities or you don't. And I think it's, I, you know, it's really, I, I've always been very much a risk taker, um, quite impulsive, you know, I'll give something a shot. Um, I'll give it my best and, you know, I'll go for it. And, um, that basically, so yeah, I, I quit my job. I launched a brand at Fashion Week. It was amazing. Um, we had a lot of great press. Um, it was a really exciting period. The bit that kind of, I guess, stuck or the, I think the challenges with the small brand is it's so difficult because it's such a saturated market. There are so many brands out there, there are so many talented people in the world, but being able to actually build a commercial viable business that people will buy, buy from essentially is really difficult. And you know, fashion school especially doesn't teach you enough on the commercials of that. It doesn't teach you the business side. You know, building a fashion business is not, you know, it is a business. It's not a creator. It's not that, you you know, I don't, I didn't do any design. Um, you're running a business. And I think that was a big challenge that I had or a big issue that I had with fashion school is that they don't prepare or equip you 
um, but they're pushing everyone to start their own brands to you know do do these things but it's not um it's not backed up by the business skills that really are needed I think also so my so I'm from New Zealand originally um I grew up in New Zealand my parents are British so moving over here was very easy um dual nationality so very very straightforward when I did decide I wanted to come and study here and I moved over when I was 19 so I moved over to the UK to study um and I've been in London ever since and I love it here um so I moved from New Zealand and um essentially went straight into university um but growing up I'd always been very quite entrepreneurial um always just I don't know you know you kind of have hindsight or you look back a bit or um, people ask you questions every so often like what got you into fashion or, or what got you into this or what um kind of what led you down that route were there any kind of telltale signs and I always find it interesting because everyone else always has a way better story than me um <laughs> I feel like you I speak to people and they're like oh from a young age I was just cutting out you know I was collaging from Vogue or oh, I no. was um, trying all my mum's clothes on at six years old and I was just destined to be in fashion. I have nothing like that. I, I literally just, I didn't even like, you know, I wasn't even that interested in fashion at all. Um, and that's what made me realize at an older age that it wasn't fashion. It always was very creative and I loved art and I was always, you know, those were definitely kind of the, the areas I focused, but it was really the more entrepreneurial side, understanding the mechanics of business, understanding how I could make something succeed. Um, so I did a lot of things like, you know, charity events, we'd, uh, organizing events, student council, like lots of stuff like that. And I, I guess in hindsight, you look back and think, oh, okay, I guess this makes sense because I did all of these things, uh, you know, it's quite entrepreneurial as a kid. Um, but it's interesting. And I guess that's what kind of led me down this route. But I, so yeah, I, I graduated, I um, was working, then I launched this business, as I mentioned. Um, and it was at fashion week, actually what's called market week, where, or essentially basically just in the showrooms where you need to start taking orders and obviously you need to um, take orders to, you know, to make a business. And that was, um, that was my kind of first eye opener where I realized how hard it was going to be. Um, nobody was taking orders. Um, and then everyone started saying, oh, people don't put place orders at London. They wait until the last, you know, this is where fashion gets all frivolous and ridiculous, but they wait until <laughs> the final, um, the, the like Paris essentially the last of the four um fashion weeks to to place orders and it's so much hustling you're constantly reaching out to buyers you're constantly convincing them to take a you know take a chance on you there are so many brands vying for these um vying for these orders and you know it's a massively saturated market it's very competitive um you need to have a very strong unique selling point you know most people are you know super super talented people are creating these beautiful collections but they're not commercial and really, it comes down to the fact that if you're asking customers to buy something from you, there has to be, they have to be able to wear it every day, or there has to be, there has to be a commercial viability to the brand and the product, right? And I think this was my kind of early signs of this is actually going to be quite difficult because the industry is very backward. It's very much built on this traditional model that maybe has worked for the past 20 years, but is not working now. You know, customers are using social media, they're using uh, e-commerce. They're not, they don't have to go to a store like Selfridges or Harrods to buy. And the problem is as small brands, the only real avenue to sell your products is to go or to approach stores like Selfridges and Harrods. Um, getting into those stores is very, very different. And then when you meet the buyers, you get the same old story. It takes three years. You need to build your brand first and then we'll look at ordering or, you know, we love these pieces. We're only going to buy three of them or whatever it is. And you just think, how am I ever going to build a brand or build a business? And this is where, you know, building a hobby or a brand crosses the line of business which is this has to be financially viable there are profit margins involved I have to survive I have to pay my rent two very different things 
And I remember I've had some really good advice over the years of mentors or people. And I remember sitting down in Paris with one, um, I can't remember his name now. He had a beautiful brand. I don't think it exists anymore. And he'd been in it for years. And I remember him saying, basically one of the best pieces of advice was, if you're looking, you know, if this is a creative outlet for you, if this is about, you know, creating something and making, then get a studio and do it as a hobby in the evening because this is a business. And if you're actually going to treat this as a brand and a business that needs to grow, you're going to, you need to pay rent. So this is totally different. You need to approach it differently. And I just think that was a really, it's such an, it's such a kind of wake up call. Not, not even a wake up call because I knew this, but I think it's, that's where fashion school doesn't prepare you actually for the world of business and that this isn't about creating pretty products and hoping to sell them. This is building a business, you know, there's cash flows, P&Ls, there's balance sheets here. Um, but that was, that was kind of, I guess my first, uh, the first kind of time I realized, shit, this is gonna be, re- this is gonna be a lot harder than I thought. Um, we were lucky that we were taking orders from private, private clients, editors, we still were doing commissions for celebrities, but when it came to the, the question over, okay, but how do you grow a business? How do you turn, you know, these orders or what's ticking over into scale? Um, that's when it gets quite challenging. And like I said, we're approaching stores. Problem is when you get the orders, they're, like I said, they're very small. You then have the challenge if you don't hit the minimum order quantities, you're getting surcharges from the textile mills. You're then getting surcharges from your um, production houses. So you end up actually getting an order and you get really excited about it. But then when you have to fulfill it, you realize that you're losing money and you're actually basically paying (laughs) the store to take your products because financially it doesn't add up. And the stores take a huge margin. Um, You know, the stockers, when they buy, they take big margins. They also, then you've, you've got all the other challenges within that too. So you get penalized if you have late deliveries, you'll then get pieces returned. They'll want to sell at return. It's a very difficult way to build a brand. And the problem that I always had with it, with it was that I didn't have control over the, the journey and the storytelling and the relationship with the end user. So it felt like you're selling products, but you don't, you're not getting that feedback. You're not really learning how to, you know, what works, what doesn't. And that concept essentially is what started Lone Sign Club is, um, we would basically look at the balance sheets. I had a couple of business mentors at the time that were like, this is like, this is, you know, you're, where you're making money, granted smaller, but where you're making money is from private clients. Your margins are better. You're actually got the ability then to upsell in those situations. They're not just buying one piece, they're buying more. It's obviously that experience and that relationship. And then they're bringing their friends or their networks in. So that obviously kind of, you know, this is back in 2015, that's, that kind of started that whole direction of going direct to consumer. And essentially the question, the big question we pose to ourselves is okay well how do we avoid going down the wholesale route of a stockist and actually how do we if we go direct to consumer um how do we just find more of these clients that are buying from us just more of these um these specific customers and that's basically what led me down the route of pop-up stores um we i remember actually we we were at fashion week and we we spoke to um a bunch of other brands about this challenge and realized that we weren't the only only ones having this the same kind of conundrum or you know questioning the model the traditional retail model and got together with a bunch of people from fashion week um and said look we're going to host the pop-up store um we're going to find space who wants to try it and everybody was 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 interested everyone wanted to get involved which was amazing so we realized that was the first point when i realized this wasn't just an issue we were facing but all small brands are facing is how do I actually get my product to market? How do I get to the end consumer without having to go through stockists that are, it takes too long. It's super expensive. Um, you don't have the relationship with that customer, all things that are absolutely vital when you're a small brand. Um, 
So then I we started looking for a space. Um, we found this crazy little frozen yogurt shop on Brick Lane. Um, <laughs> and this was back in, I think, 2016 now. Um, and so the Lone Sign Club didn't exist yet. It, it was purely at this stage I was looking for pop-up space or looking as basically to solve a problem that I had in my business. So I was using this, this idea of pop-up stores um, as a sales vehicle for myself. So I managed to get these convince this frozen yogurt shop to open their doors, let us pay them a tiny amount, and um, I just filled it with a bunch of amazing brands. And um, it was amazing. You know, we, we were there for a week. And what really, I guess what stuck with me or started the kind of foundations of what LDC is today was the fact that customers, A, were coming because it was an opportunity to see brands that were online only that you weren't sure, so, you know, see the products uh, in, in real life to be able to touch, see, feel, and try. Um, and also we were creating an experience that you just couldn't get online and you certainly can't get from the high street. They were able to connect with the people behind the brands. They were able to learn like, you know, from us. They, could, they, would, they were listening to our stories. They wanted to know our stories. They wanted to know the products and the brands um, and what we were doing and what inspired us and who we were as individuals. Essentially what social gives brands the ability to do is to look into that you know, authentic, genuine window of the people or you know, the businesses on a more behind the scenes level. So essentially um, it was hugely successful. And then after that first store, we just started doing more and more of them. Um, everyone was making money. It was helping followings, audiences were growing, reach was increasing. Um, it was all super positive and the customer and brand community just kept growing. So I started, I was doing those for a while and then um, got to a point basically where I was sitting down. I remember it very well. I was sitting down and it was a cafe in Somerset house with a business mentor at the time. And we were looking at the balance sheets and he was like, this business is making money. You know, your, your, this, this retail model, whatever you want to call it is making, is really making money and you're getting great growth. This is all organic. Um, and at the same time, House of Fraser and Debenhams had started to report losses. So the high street was starting, starting to show cracks and essentially, I was also having an issue with the fact that I was supporting so many incredible brands that were doing such amazing things when it came to sustainability. And my own brand, like, yes, we were thinking consciously about, you know, materials manufacture, but we weren't, I didn't feel like we were doing enough. And all the brands we were working with were using incredible new materials um, that were so innovative in their approaches. They were using these, you know, all these stories about, um, you know, look, like supporting women into work, working with underprivileged communities, um, you know, just amazing stories that just that had so much more of a purpose. They were actually trying to change the face of fashion through their businesses. And that mixed with the fact that I just felt like another brand in a very saturated market. And if I actually switched sides, the impact that I could have being this, the one, you know, someone to actually support and empower them um, it just felt so much more powerful. So I guess that was when I made the change. And um, that was when I decided to put my brand on hold and uh, go kind of, you know, go in with, with Lone Design Club. And I was lucky that, you know, we had some business mentors that came came on the board um, at any days. Um, so I had that support. And I think that was where that was my one of my bigger concerns was that, you know, my background's been in fashion and art and creative. Great. But I have no, literally have no business skills. Um, apart from just, you know, natural ones. So being able to build a business with people that did, that those skills were covered was really important to me. Um, 
and I and I love that side of it and I've been able and I've been you know lucky enough to be able to really learn and get more into it and now that's where I that's why I think at the beginning I said I definitely um sat on the more entrepreneurial side I just hadn't I guess approached uh I, I just hadn't been as exposed to it uh, and maybe I should have now I am so it's it's different but um yeah so essentially that that was kind of we we incorporated the business in 2018 um and that was it. We just went full throttle building a network of pop-up stores across the UK, Italy, and China. Um, and then COVID hit, which was really fun. <laughs> nice surprise waiting for you around the corner. <laughs> exactly, right? You know, a retail business that had just launched in Shanghai that now has three locations that was super excited to do the next one that was getting, you know, great traction, community growing, brands and customers not focused that much on e-commerce because um, it was a very much a retention tool for us, but we were super focused on helping brands increase their growth by physical. So it was a really interesting time. Um, and I remember actually, I remember we had a store in Spitterfields. Well, we had, we were open in Milan and in London. And I remember getting the last flight or flying back on the Sunday where Milan went into lockdown and just sitting on the train to the airport going, oh my God, what's going on? And they were just like, you know, the whole, um, the whole region um, is going into red zone and just thinking, what is this? Um, And at that time, obviously no one had any clue. And just being on the phone with different different shareholders um, and, and business mentors. And I remember most of them were like, oh, six to eight weeks, it'll be fine. But there was one, <laughs> there was one that had been with, who had been with me kind of longstanding from the right at the beginning and did a lot of work in China. And he was like, no, he's like, this is going to be really, really bad. Um, and he was, and he was the only one that said, you're looking at at least 18 months go. He's like, you need to, you've literally, you know, time is ticking, go wow. and find, you need to find cash. You need to preserve cash. Cash is king right now. Basically, two things. Cash and content is king, was what I remember him specifically saying in the conversation we had. And he was so right. You know, get cash in the bank because it's going to be a really bumpy ride. And everyone suddenly realized, shit, this is, we're going into a serious, um, a serious, uh, you know, a global, you know, state of, of, you know, this is going to be crazy. And then the content um, element, because obviously you're going to be locked at home, but content's going to become crazy important because we've you know you're going to need content to talk about you're going to need um you know you're going to still need that storytelling element that community so and I remember that very well and just literally the whole team went into kind of hyper mode of let's you know get the cash in um and let's get content and just do as much as we could um, good advice (laughs) it was really good advice um yeah, and then obviously it lasted, you know, way longer than uh, 18 months. I think it ended up being what's at least been kind of, oh God, it's been like, what, two and a half years now? <laughs> I don't want to think about it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's still, go- it's still going, right? So, yeah. Um, but yeah, it was so, it was really interesting. And then basically through COVID, we just had to pivot the business. Um, and the business is completely different now than it was before or during COVID. Um, we weren't very di- much more di- um, digitally focused, but um still really focusing on physical retail which is it's our strength and always has yeah. been and we moved from just supporting brands to actually supporting landlords and property businesses wow. and what we started to do was look at how could we activate physical spaces in new ways that um because we can't open stores because of covid but 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 customers are around people are around you know there are communities local communities um how can we focus on these hyper local communities and how can we excite them through physical retail you know they're still going to be walking up and down the street they're still taking their kids to school people are still need to get out and stretch their legs they're going to go to the local cafe 
So what we started to do was work with landlords and activate spaces in whole new ways. And our kind of one of our solutions, which is still going crazy strong now, amazingly, is um, being able to take instead of vinyling a store with just, you know, advertising, oh, this is an empty unit. What we started to do was build sets in the windows and put our brands into the windows and uh, put QR codes all over them so that customers could essentially see, scan, shop. And what we found was super fascinating is areas that we never thought, like Cardiff, for instance, not a place we ever thought we'd have a customer base. Um, but we were, we were the results were that we were getting three times higher conversion than on a typical online store. Wow. So we're getting 6% online conversion rates. And just from those windows, we had a 100% increase in website traffic and customer um you know, signing up to our mailing list and, and you know, joining the community um, from certain areas. And it was so fascinating to see people, you know, really adopting new technology and new ways of shopping. Um, and now, obviously, everyone's, you know, because we were obviously back in um, 2019 when we launched in Shanghai, it was all QR codes, all WeChat, Alipay. So we were very much, you know, pushing the QR code thing back then. Um, but nobody here would, would ever use them. Nothing got scanned. Whereas now it's like second nature post-COVID. Um, and we're all looking at, you know, different things. Now it's all chat about metaverse. And, you know, we all have yeah. to like, we're going to be living <laughs> in these virtual worlds going forward. So that's my next big project is, um, yeah, live now we need to be, yeah, let's go and get into the metaverse yeah. and, and that side of it. But, um, yeah. And that's, that's so interesting as well, because, you know, it's such a challenging time, both for your business but also presumably for you as a founder you know you've put all of this work in you've just founded a business and then you know you have all of these serious bumps in the road I mean it sounds like having that resilience and that responsiveness and that kind of willing to just pivot go with the times just just take what comes it sounds like that's been so important to the to the success of the business and to you yeah I mean resilience is absolutely key um I mean it's it's really hard um, and I, and I think, you know, getting a business, you know, through COVID when so many, you know, so many didn't, um, you know, so many didn't survive. And I think, you know, for us being a retail business, which is one that really was not <laughs> really shouldn't have survived probably. Um, but yeah, you, you pivot, you adjust. I think a lot of it, it depends on, I think if you can be clever, I think the whole, you're, you're you've got to understand, you know, and I think this is a big thing with business. That a lot of people sometimes struggle with is that the whole point of the business isn't that it just does one thing that's that one vision and you just, that's it. You, you have to achieve that. It's the ability to allow the vision to adjust and adapt based on um, the response that you're getting. And I think often too many times people, you know, build businesses and they're like, it has to do this one thing and that's it, but they're not able to, they can't be flexible enough to see actually where, the growth is coming from um, and actually what customers want. Because at the end of the day, the customer is king. What that customer wants from you, where the revenue is coming from, where the growth is coming from, responding to that audience, getting on the front lines, talking to those customers, um, you know, make it an effort to go to our launch events, to speak to customers, to watch what they're doing. Um, I always ask, you know, uh, our team, like, what, what are brands saying? Like, what, what are people, where is the value in what we're doing? And build into those avenues. It's one of the reasons why now with our business, you know, our goal is to power sales for by physical retail. But what we're finding now is actually it's more about the value and the metrics and the insights that we're collecting. So we've hosted over 55 stores and over 32 window activations. The data and the insights and the learnings that we have there on the different customer demographics and that customer behavior and how these customers play across the omni-channel, that's what people want now. So we're moving our business much more in the direction of, well, 
you know, and it's being responsive, right? So it's not me just saying, we're just going to do pop-ups. That's what we do. That's the business, but it's actually being able to be flexible. And um, I think also just being, um, you know, wanting to go with that response, like being, you know, follow the response as opposed to being quite rigid. And this is the business we do, um, which I think is really important. I think a lot of people struggle with um, because it is, it is difficult. You know, you have an idea or vision of what you're trying to build, but it never pans out like that never goes that way you know if I would look back you know four years ago this is definitely not the journey I thought I was going to be on definitely didn't think I'd be in retail um and certainly didn't think that I'd be now building you know building a business more in the technology direction which is a platform that's supporting um with data and insights you know it's completely it's crazy but it's the mixture of being able to respond to a customer and look at actually what's pushing the needle. What is it that actually, what is the value that we're building in our business and being able to respond to that and having the resilience to do that because it's so easy just to give up. It's so easy just to quit and to say, it's not working. I can't do it. I don't want to do it. I'm out. Um, So I think those two things are absolutely critical. It's interesting as well, that kind of flexibility, that lack of rigid thinking. I mean, I'm, I'm I'm sensing a theme here. (laughs) It's uh, you know, you mentioned about your own career, like, you don't have this kind of story of like, you know, the moment where design gripped you and that was your kind of tunnel vision. Like you were flexible, right? You did design, you tried it, you learned those skills, you transitioned to entrepreneurship, you picked up those businesses on the go, you know, and those and those skills, you know, through challenge and through hard work and through that kind of flexibility and seeing where life takes you. I mean, I think so often the narrative that we hear is, you you have a passion in your career you go and do that thing and you build up in a kind of linear way but being able to kind of move between different experiences depending where life takes you is so so important absolutely. and sounds like it's been so valuable <laughs> yeah absolutely I think just being open to opportunity but being open to like you know like we've said like flexibility um and that doesn't mean you know that doesn't mean that you can't have your north star and you haven't got your you know your vision of, of what you're building and in your you know it's just it's a different route to get there you know, my, I guess my personal mission is, you know, I want, I want to, you know, it's for me, it's about, you know, being a, you know, challenging the current retail, um, you know, the current, the high street, challenging the current situation and being a part of reinventing retail and high street for, you know, for the, these future brands to give them that access to the high street, to give them a way to build their businesses, um, to give them a new route to market. And I think, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I have to always do pop-ups. You know, it's just a different, I'm, I'm able to still keep my North Star. Um, it just means I have to be slightly more flexible about how I'm actually going to achieve that and do that. And a lot of that is going with, you know, the times getting that customer feedback, um, sure. looking at what's actually pushing the needle, looking at the data. And I think often people kind of go with that that gut or um, often people will, they'll just go with quite, like you said, a linear route when yeah. actually being an entrepreneur is about, you know, you're rolling with the punches a lot of the time. Yeah. And yes, keep that vision, but being flexible that the journey to get there might be different or what you're you're actually going to pivot so many times. We've pivoted so many times. And I think being open to pivot is what makes you, if you can be open to pivot, it makes you so much more resilient Yeah, um, because it's so difficult. I'm interested as well. You know, you mentioned being a challenger and a disruptor in that industry. I mean, how was that, you know, like a young woman coming up, you saw something you didn't like in the industry, you just wanted to do something about it by like a radically different kind of business model. I mean, how how easy was that to do? You know, how receptive? I know you've had, you know, so many accolades and awards, but how how did the industry kind of respond to that, if you like? I mean, it's it's so hard. Um, I mean, it, it depends. Like on some, you know, you... It's it's tricky. It's like a, as a business, we've been you know we've had 
you know, we've got a wonderful community of brands, of customers, and has been that's kind of what's driven the success is that people want and use our service, use us, they want to access these brands, brands want the spaces, they want to, they use us to be able to access customers. Um, I think being in a position where being a sole founder and being a woman and being I'm 31 um, is really, really hard. I don't have I don't have the traditional finance or business background that a lot of founders have. So I've had to learn all of it. I have made a shit ton of mistakes. I have done things I would never never do again. I have learned more, I think, than I've learned more than I ever thought I would. Um, and those learnings were so, so valuable. Um, but it's really, really hard. Um, but it's also extremely rewarding. You get knocked down basically 10 times, but that one win is what pushes you forward because that win feels like you've fucking earned it. You know, you've, you've really earned it when it comes to it. And it's, and that's what's super exciting. And I think that's why I love being an entrepreneur and challenging is that you, it is difficult and it is, you know, you have to be very resilient. You have to be extremely thick skinned, um, you know, fundraising or going out for investment is one of the most difficult parts of the job. And you, I, I, every, I mean, I assume, assume it's everyone from what I've been told anyway, but you're constantly being told, no, you're not scalable enough. You're not sexy in the tech sector. You're not this, you're not that. You can't do this. It will never work. And it, don't get me wrong, it takes, you know, that is a, that's a whole new level of resilience um, when you're convincing people constantly of why they should believe in you, why they should give you money to grow. Um, to grow your business so and I find that so much more difficult than being able to go out and sell or convince somebody to join my platform um, which is crazy but it's you know it, it's so much easier when you you know what you know you believe in your business you know what you're doing um, but it is it's difficult it's it's yeah. such, they're just two very different ball games absolutely and that kind of brings me actually nicely to my kind of final question which is uh, if you could give um, you know women like you, any advice who are starting out, you know, in the industry or want to become an entrepreneur, what, what advice would you give them? Oh, what would I give them? Um, I think the first thing is do it is don't, don't think about it too much. Don't sit on the sidelines. Don't sit on the fence. Um, get out there and do it. And I think often, and it's quite, it's quite interesting. A couple of my, um, actually one of our investors um, is, is amazing. She's had an incredible career. Um, and she recently, um, recently started to set up, set up her own brand uh, oh, wow. about a year ago now, two years ago. And it's so interesting because she looks at me and says, I wish I had done this younger. I wish I had done it when I was your age or younger. Um, and she's a lot older now. And, um, and she's like, I just, I wish I had, had made that jump. I was always too scared. So in that respect, I would say, get out there and just, just do it. Don't let it, don't let it go on too long. But at the same time from the grass is always greener, right? So from my perspective, I say to her, I wish I'd waited. I feel too young to be in the shoes I'm in. And I don't feel like I have enough life experience or business experience to be doing this. And it's probably why I make more mistakes or probably why my journey is going to maybe take longer. I don't know. But, um, so interesting, obviously the grass being greener on either side, but that would probably be my one piece of advice. And I, and I wouldn't change anything. I have no regrets. Um, I very much live by that. I, but I do think as well, you just have to get out and do it. Um, but I would also say always, and it's, it's a massive thing for me is, is look to the customer, look at the end user. What do they want? And are you solving a real problem for them? Is there that appetite? And if you've got that, you can build a sustainable business that will grow um, whether it's organically or it's growth, 
but I think those are my two big things is don't don't wait get out there and do it do it as a side hustle um and do that side hustle until you're making serious cash serious traction and you're at a point where you have to give up your day job to do this um but go out there and do it too many people I speak to are too scared uh, men or women and I just I don't know I'm very much maybe I'm too impulsive but I'm much more <laughs> risk taker I would rather do it fail and try than um than have not done it and be what if so I'm not sure but it is really scary because you're putting yourself on the line every single day and I always kind of think of it like you're standing up naked in a you know in a sea of people that are very you know wearing suits and ties and whatnot it's how it feels on a daily basis because you're putting your heart, soul, you're, you're putting everything out there. But at the same time, I would also say, don't worry about things being perfect. A, no one can see the imperfections you see and no one gives a shit. Everyone's so focused on themselves and their own jobs and what they're doing that really there's no, you like, don't worry so much. And I think, actually, I'm sorry, there's all the stuff's now coming out now. I'm thinking- No, that's like, great. Oh, that you can never advice. have too much advice. <laughs> <laughs> I think the, the last like comment would be, um, it just needs to be good enough. And I think sometimes, and I'm very much a perfectionist. I want things to be perfect. And I've been hung up in the past where I don't want it to go out unless it's 100% right. Then other times where I've been too lax and I've been like, just get it out. And then it's been, you know, we've done too much or overstretched or whatever. And I think what I've kind of come down to is it's not never going to be perfect, but it needs to be good enough. And that's absolutely enough because you won't, you'll see the imperfections, but other people won't. And also it's so much better to have got it out there and to have tried and done it than have not. And I think that's very much the kind of mentality of starting a business is like, if you've got something, you've got an idea, get it out there, regardless if you're hundred percent happy with it or not, get out there and try. Otherwise it'll go, years will go past and you won't, you won't do it. You won't launch it. And then you'll regret it or you won't regret it, but you will never, you just won't know, you know? So I think just let it be good enough and then get it out. It's fantastic advice. Well, thank you so much. It's been so such a pleasure talking to you. I really, really loved it. So thank you so much for coming on. No worries. It's been really fun. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thanks very much for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Rebecca and her business, visit loandesignclub.com. And if you'd like to get in touch to share your thoughts about this episode, or if you're interested in coming on the show yourself, you can contact us through Twitter and LinkedIn at Ernest Agency. I've been your host, Beatrice Alabaster. Our producer is Steve Spicer, and 43% and Rising is brought to you by Ernest, the award-winning agency chasing the humdrum out of B2B marketing.